It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who love to get stickers and lollipops at the doctor's office. No, no, no. We don't usually do lollipops because we're very health minded. But oh. stickers for sure. Well, I I like the little stickers that like you can like th- make things out of them. You know, like there's this like little Mr. Potato yes, Head stickers. The, the put together ones. There's little doctors that we give out sometimes oh, and cute. nurses and kids at the beach with sunscreen and stuff like that. So those okay. are fun. Good stuff. Do you, now, do you get do you get lollipops yes. at your kids' doctor? No, they okay. they just, just get wondering. stickers. I mean, it's and fine. You you know, you have this you have this nice like um, spectrum of like from doctors that give stuff like like give candy or lollipops, which yeah. I don't think is very many. And then all of us give stickers, but then we have some friends that are like, well, we might give stickers, but we're not going to give any licensed character stickers because we don't oh. want to advertise oh, things no. in media. And I'm kind of <laughs> like, eh, I'm too into like these cool geeky characters to not give out spider-man and the avengers and and uh the princesses and uh everybody so i'm i'm right there in the middle yeah we we get character stickers for sure that's that's how you get through shots anyhow i'm karen ernst i'm the executive director of voices for vaccines and i'm nathan boonster a general pediatrician here at blankrens hospital in des moines iowa and we are talking about the flu today. We are interviewing uh, Dr. L.J. Tan from Immunization Action Coalition and like a million other places. And his CV is like 5,000 pages long. So I'm not going to go over that right now. But he's uh, the guy who knows everything about the flu and the flu vaccine. And when I have a question, he's the one I go to. So we've got some questions for him about last year's flu this year's flu season and this year's flu vaccine. See see what he's got to say. See if and he can answer some questions. And for once, we haven't actually done the interview before we did our intro, so we really don't know what he's going to say. <laughs> so the suspense is killing. <laughs> right yeah, don't spoil the magic. Mm, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but before then, of course, we want to do a little bit of Around the Web yeah. You know what? Actually, I'm going to back up. Before we do Around the Web, mm-hmm. I want to do a little housekeeping because this is our last podcast of 2017. Ooh. It is um, uh, episode 24, which means 24 months um, because I don't count the episodes correctly. Right, and yeah. We had those mini episodes and stuff yeah. at one point and whatnot. Yeah. But that's fine. That's fine. And... I just want to mention that at the end of the year, p- a lot of people are feeling generous. Mm-hmm. Their pockets are a little heavy. Their wallets get a little fat. And they want to donate money. Voices for Vaccines, up until this point, has only ever gotten individual donations. We don't we don't take pharma money. We'll, you know, we don't want to take pharma money. We'll never take pharma money. Um, but we certainly appreciate our individual donors we can do a lot with a very little amount of money like this podcast and uh, we really need your support so if you listen to this podcast and you enjoy it consider pitching a few dollars toward us at voicesforvaccines.org support and if you are a regular listener you know consider being a monthly donor give us a couple of bucks every month makes a huge difference and i'll tell you with the number of downloads we get every month if everybody who downloaded our podcasts don't donated a dollar a month we would be flush with money uh so you know think about <laughs> giving a couple dollars they, i mean listen people you're out there you're listening to this you're telling me this isn't worth a dollar? You're telling me that this banter that we're having isn't worth your dollar? I think it's worth your dollar. It's, it's at it's least your dollar. worth a dollar. So yeah, give, your, dollar. give your $12 at least. Or, you know, $120 maybe. Or whatever you can spare. Whatever you whatever you have that right. you It'll would like you to go good. towards. It will make you feel great. I give every year. I don't think I've given my uh, my gift this year, but it'll be coming. Don't you worry. Right. And I give all the time. So. You do give. You give. <laughs> you're, you're the gift that keeps on giving. 
And with that, let's go on to Around the Web. Uh, right. Why don't you start? Because I think yours is fun. <laughs> uh, I'm excited about mine. So it's time for Celebrity Vaccine Roundup on uh, Vax Talk ding, 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 because ding, 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 ding. we have a new major pro-vaccine celebrity. And when we're talking about major pro-vaccine celebrity, we're talking about none other than Wonder Woman herself, Gal Gadot, uh, um, promoting vaccination. Uh, there's a uh, an article in the Jerusalem Post that just starts off, Gal Gadot wants you to vaccinate your children. The actress and Wonder Woman stars joined an ongoing campaign in favor of vaccines on Tuesday. Gadot uh, uploaded a, a post on Facebook visible, and this one is only in the, the, the Israel Facebook, calling on people to stay healthy and seek out immunizations. There's a whole campaign going on because of the measles outbreak. Um, that uh, is about people putting their hands on their shoulder, like where they would get an immunization, just kind of to show. And so she's got a, a photo of that. And she said, her quote is, we're all posting a photo with our hands on our vaccinated shoulders. Because an immunized environment is a protective environment in the eyes of medicine, listen to doctors. She wrote, adding, we should only experience health. So I think that's fantastic. It's always worth for me mentioning that, of course, you don't immunize because celebrity opinion is to immunize because they think you should. But having allies that have um, that can reach people uh, in different ways, and having somebody uh, like uh, like Wonder Woman, <laughs> like Gal Gadot, out there talking about the importance of a public health measure. This is in Israel, of course. I'm hopeful that maybe we'll see some um, some in in maybe in the United States and whatnot with her promoting some immunizations. Who knows? But just to have somebody who you know is on our side that is actually Wonder Woman is is just makes me smile. Yeah, if only she could take out her lasso of truth yes. and like put it around like Andrew Wakefield, like ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> This, well, and when I shared this initially, I kind of like, I shared a gif of of her in Wonder Woman, like deflecting bullets right and left with her um, gauntlets. And so I thought that was a, an appropriate allegory for A, immunizations and immunity, and B, fighting off misinformation that's on the internet. So I think it's important to, to, to explain too, you know, she's over in Israel, um, she's in Asia, but, you know, right next to um, Europe where there are a huge number of measles cases. And the World Health Organization just uh, reported last week that measles cases worldwide are up 30% yeah. in 2017 because of lack of immunization yeah so that's um 6.7 million people who are mostly kids caught measles in 2017 and 110,000 people died from measles in 2017 so that's less than um we had in 2000 but it, it is up significantly uh since you know the year before and yeah. it's a, a trend that continues upwards so um not only does she have her lasso of truth and her little wristbands but she's got science behind her explaining that it's it's necessary and it's good to vaccinate your kids and it's you know of course safe and wonderful and all the things we always say which of course raises the question when do we get her on the podcast karen that's your job yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'll work on that <laughs> Just let me know. Um, so I, I'm going to switch. I have my around the web. I have two, so I'm just going to cheat on that. Um, I'll do the uh, troubling one first. Okay. And that's that we have competition. Oh, yes. Now, <laughs> now we, have we have like podcast friends. We've got the, the Scientific Parent podcast, which is wonderful. And we have the Ideas Start Here podcast. So we've got friends, but we have actual competition now. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> so you know that this podcast is called Vax Talk. Yes. It's nice and slangy. We talk yep. about vaccines. We do. There is a new podcast called The Vaccination Conversation. It sounds very um, astute. Sounds like maybe it'd be in a similar vein. 
it ha- it features a parent and a pediatrician, uh-huh. sort of like our that format. Familiar. Yeah. It does, doesn't it? They talk about, they have conversations about vaccines. Hmm. There's a problem. There's a problem with this podcast, however. Yeah. Do you want to know the problem? Uh, tell me what the tell me what the tell me what the problem is, Karen. The uh, pediatrician is Dr. Bob Sears. Oh, <laughs> so so there are some significant differences between our podcasts <laughs> in terms of one being under investigation, the other one not. But hmm. now, have you listened to the podcast? I knew about this, of course, and in fact, I have. If, if, I I have some. I I as soon as I found out about this. The first thing that came to my mind is, do they have a theme song and do they need somebody to write one for them? Because (laughs) I, I, you know, I feel like with a podcast that is so similar to ours, the name is similar, the, 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 the kind of the way that it's structured is similar. I feel like they need a parody, um, theme song. I think they need a parody jingle. And I thought maybe, I th- so I threw one together, frankly. Now, I don't know if I should do it, or should we leave it at the end for a stinger at the end of the episode, or I don't know. Let's do it as a stinger at the end. I think end. that's a great idea. All right, so you record that, and I'll put it at the end, and okay. that way people will listen to this whole podcast, because okay. they're really fascinated by that. Especially you, Dr. Bob. You listen all the way through. Um, <laughs> so tell us, I haven't listened to it yet, but you have. you got to tell me about what's going on on that thing. I listened to the first three episodes. It's it's just them talking. They're not interviewing people, and it's mostly them sort of sounding off about what they hate about what people say about vaccines that they think is wrong. <laughs> okay. um, there's one particular episode that no one should listen to. It's <laughs> where Dr. Bob um, spends 10 minutes reading the immunization schedule. <laughs> But that's such compelling content, Karen. <laughs> I feel bad <laughs> making fun of it. Why would you not even. want to listen to that? I feel bad even mentioning it. It's just it's 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 kind of a mess. Um, and but I listened. I did listen to it. He actually makes a mistake and um and he says that you know at the eleven twelve year old well child check that kids are supposed to get a pneumococcal vaccine. Um, oh. No. He did go back and correct it. He meant, I think he meant meningococcal. Sure, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> if anyone got bored before he corrected it, they're like, oh my gosh, there's a pneumococcal. So it's mostly them sort of clutching their pearls about how many vaccines everybody gets yeah. um, in that episode. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to listen to some more just so that I know what's being said in the world. Uh, but I, I'm, you know, I'm a little nervous that people are going to be like, I, I need a podcast where people talk about vaccines vaccines and instead of clicking on vax talk with our wonderful jingle they decide on the vaccination conversation hmm. yeah well i can't imagine that that's coincidence <laughs> i don't know it might be <laughs> are you saying dr bob is a listener uh no i i don't know if he's if he listens i just wonder if like the people deciding on naming this, that uh, podcast and whatnot are kind of like, well, we can kind of draw some listeners over here if we have a similarly named podcast. <laughs> hmm. It's possible. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, if, if, you, if you give it a listen, you know, let us know what you think about it. Tell us, you know, if what they're doing better than us or what we're, you know, maybe beating them at I, I want this to be a complete competition i really like i am in it to win it yeah <laughs> let's go all right <laughs> i i just want to mention one other around the web this one's weird um okay. one of our friends on twitter posted a tweet that someone replied to her saying that before you get vaccines you should get cyp 450 testing yeah I, no <laughs> I spent um, a really long time learning about what that meant because I had never heard of it before. Sure. Um, and then trying to figure out um, why we don't do that, if there was a legitimate reason why we don't do that. And what do you know? There, There is a legitimate reason why we don't do... Um, it's I think it's called... It's pronounced cytochrome P450. Yep. So those are... Uh, I'll just read off what I, I wrote um, in the latest... Uh, 
the latest issue of This Week in Vaccine he- Hesitancy last week. It said they're enzymes in human tissue that help people synthesize hormones and cholesterol and metabolize many compounds, including pharmaceuticals. So the right. absence or presence of these enzymes can create drug interactions or adverse side effects in people. So that's sort of what they are. Um, the known adverse effects of CYP450s on pharmaceuticals does not include vaccines. No. There's no reason <laughs> to believe that they could cause uh, adverse events in vaccines either because vaccines are not metabolized in the way that our other pharmaceuticals are. Also, the ingredients in vaccines are present in such small amounts that even someone with a CYP450 polymorphism would not be adversely affected. And then after I wrote all of this and did all my research, which really took (laughs) more hours than I want to um, admit, I did um, ask a lot of people to read it, including our friends, Dr. Stanley Mm Plotkin and Dr. Um, Paul Offit. So I I felt good saying that. I feel like it's good information and I feel like it's going to be the next, um, oh, I don't know how to pronounce it without swearing. The MDHFR. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But this is even more, I feel like, I mean, we've known about p450 system like we all learn about that in medical school and and that there are certain drugs you have to be careful of if you have a problem with your with with that cycle basically uh and so there are specific drugs to worry about and again those are ones like you've you've covered this all really well here already but these are drugs that you are taking and building up in your system and so your system might have difficulty processing them if you have problems with these enzymes this is not the case with vaccines because <laughs> right. it is not it, it, they don't contain sufficient ingredients of anything and particularly nothing that needs to use your p450 system that you have to worry about testing for it there's certainly no studies that show that either with the p450 or with the mthfr that show that there are any problems whatsoever to be immunized even if you have a deficiency in one of those systems and so it's yeah it's just another one of those things that 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 the anti-vaccine movement and these web pages just throw out there just to see if it sticks to see if it scares people yeah, they they use sciency terms, they use medical terms, and you know, then we have to spend all this time. You know, if I'm 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 a parent, I didn't go to medical mm-hmm. school. Um, not even going to tell you how long it's been since I've taken something like a biology class. But uh, uh, you know, in order to figure this out, I, I I spent a long time tracking down what does this mean, what is this thing, what's that about. And if I were a person who had less time or was maybe a little prone to being um, hesitant about vaccines in any mm-hmm. way, that that might push me over the edge. The, these, this use of this use and misuse of medical terminology um, that you know the general public doesn't understand. So I think in, in general, the, one of the reasons I wanted to highlight that is that in general, that is a tactic that anti-vaccine people uh, use for people who might be a little afraid of vaccines in order to, to push them over the edge. They, yep. they, you know, trot out fake science terms. Well, and the entirety of the anti-vaccine movement is one huge gish gallop, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So we talk about gish gallops being... Uh, when you're on Facebook or somewhere and somebody assaults you with just like a, a, a dozens and dozens of like links and whatnot, just plasters them, right? And the nobody can actually respond to them all. There's always another thing. Uh, you, you try to create this appearance that there's some great argument, even though if you actually took the hours that it would take to dissect every little one, you would find none of them hold water and they don't together even make a compelling body of evidence, right? But mm-hmm. it's a waste of time. That is true in general about the entirety of the anti-vaccine movement that there is this continual trickle or gush of just like not even stand up to basic scrutiny level of of theories and concerns that don't pan out when you actually dig into them but nobody can dig into the everybody can't dig into them all individually uh and so they, to some people, create this appearance that there's far more legitimacy to the anti-vaccine side than there really is. And so there's always going to be these moles to whack down after we've whacked down other moles. 
Well said. And <laughs> I just want to add that, you know, if you find a thing out there in the world that seems wrong, but you're not sure why it is, uh, you don't spend a ton of time tracking it down. That's my job. Mm-hmm. Let me let me waste my afternoon doing that. Yeah. Send it my way and I'll, I'll work through it with you or I'll, you know, get some of my friends who are so generous with their time to to talk me through it and help explain it to you. So that's that's Great why plan. we're here. That's why we talk vaxes here. Yes. <laughs> that's where that's why we're vax talk. I'm not gonna call it the vaccine conversation. I'm gonna call it the bearded spock cast. I think it's the from the bearded spock universe of vaccine podcasts. So I'm calling it the bearded spock cast from here on out if we ever talk about that podcast. I have a feeling we're going to <laughs> There's probably actually a podcast called Bearded Spotcast, so I probably shouldn't do that, but until I find out otherwise. Now I'm going to be looking that up this afternoon. You don't know about the Bearded Spock universe? In Star Trek, the original series, there's, they go to another universe that's kind of like our universe, but all the most of the good people are bad in that universe, and Spock has a beard. So, no, I did not actually uh, watch... I'm not a Trekkie. I don't... And I just... Sorry, I apologize. My father watched Star Trek when I was growing up, the 1960s one, and I, I, I think that, along with Kung Fu, and uh, what was the other show that? I, oh, the good, the movie, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. They're like, uh-huh. just all lumped together into like this, like my, the TV's being taken up, and I can't watch Little House on the Prairie, and I don't like it. Sort of pain for me um i think so. we better move on or we're gonna get reviews that say you know that other podcast they don't diverge into like diatribes <laughs> about um star trek and what movies they watch when they were kids so let's 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 roll that beautiful vaccine let's footage all right on the other side of the break we will talk to dr lj tan we are now joined by dr lj tan who is the Chief Strategy Officer at the Immunization Action Coalition, and he also heads, I have to look at these, he also heads the National Adult Immunization Summit and the National Influenza Vaccine Summit, and he has a 73-page long CV, so if you want to know more about him, (laughs) you have to Google that, because I am not going to read it all to you, but thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Tan. I'm going to call you LJ, because I know you. Hello. Hi, Karen. Thanks so much for this opportunity to chat about one of my favorite topics, influenza. Absolutely. And I was telling people, I did a little Facebook Live video while I was waiting for you in our Voices for Vaccines discussion forum. And I was telling them that whenever I have any influenza question, I email Dr. Tan. say, LJ, help me figure this out. So I'm so excited to bring our audience into a conversation with you. Pleasure's mine. Thanks again. So I want to take us back in time, to all the way back to 2017, 2018, to that influenza season. That's a I don't long know. way back. <laughs> it is. We're going in the way back machine, uh, like uh, Peabody and his boy Sherman. But um, my question is this. Uh, how, what was that season like for us? What kind of season did we see last year? Yeah, so there were several things um, that were unusual about the season. And obviously, the one everyone thinks about is the fact that it was a a whale or a whopper of a season, right? I mean, we had unprecedented numbers of hospitalizations. In fact, our hospitalization rates were at record highs. Uh, Ever since we started looking at hospitalization rates, it's been the highest it's ever been historically. So so that's really remarkable. Um, The other thing that you people probably heard about is that it was probably as high or as severe a season as the 2009 pandemic. Um, So it was, it was pretty close. Uh, We had about probably about 49 million people getting sick with flu this last season. And, um, and obviously the, um, the nineties, I'm sorry, hang on. There's a phone call coming in on my other line. There we go. I apologize for that. Um, And so, um, and we know that with the season that we just came out of, the 2017 season, uh, we obviously had about uh, 49 million people sick. And this pandemic flu season, we had about 60 million people sick. So it was pretty, pretty close. But there were some things that were really kind of, if you're a flu geek like me, cool about the previous season. Um, and that was, uh, uh, firstly, every 
everybody got sick almost all at the same time, which was kind of interesting, right? So normally with influenza, the way you see it spread across the United States is that, you know, you start out with a with pockets in the southeast, you know, Georgia, Florida, they kind of then it moves up and across the country towards California. And, 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 and so there's this spread that you can see across the map of the United States. And, um, and generally, this is symbolized in the CDC by different colors. And you can see this color kind of spread. And eventually, at some point in, in January or February, the entire country is like, you know, red, which means there's widespread influenza everywhere. What was really interesting about the last season that we came out with was it went red like all at once. At the very beginning of the season, it went red. So it's like flu just hit the whole country. So, so obviously, when you do that, you get the media, you know, the media it just amplifies itself, right? Because all of a sudden, you're not getting media reports from geographic regions of the United States. You're getting media reports from all around the United States, and they kind of play on each other, and, and that kind of builds builds up all that drama around influenza. And so that was one thing that was really unique about the, the, the season that we came out of. The second thing that was unique about this system, uh, this, this season was that I think because of the media attention, we were paying a lot more attention to things like vaccine effectiveness numbers. And unfortunately, the beginning of the season, we were hit by a vaccine effectiveness number that was um, inaccurate, right? Remember, um, I think you might, Karen, you, you were one of the first to actually start talking about this, um, that we had this so-called 10% effectiveness number that came out. Right. And it turns out, obviously, that number was from Australia. And it turns out, if you look at the data from last year's, from the season that we came out of, the vaccine, overall vaccine effectiveness for all type A and type B was about 40% in the United States. So again, going to show that one flu season is one flu season. You can't make predictions about a flu season based on the previous flu season. And in fact, the only thing certain about influenza is its uncertainty. So so I think those are things that were kind of different because what happened, I believe, as a result of those conversations about 10% effectiveness of the flu vaccine was that I think, unfortunately, it may have dissuaded some of our patients and some of our public and some of our providers even from firstly taking influenza seriously because we really should continue to take influenza seriously. It's a very, it's a nasty disease. And, and importantly, um, they might have stopped offering the vaccine as enthusiastically as they should have. And, uh, and I think we know that uh, when, a, when a provider offers the vaccine enthusiastically, patients tend to accept the vaccine. And I think we all know with the public, when they hear that the vaccine doesn't work, that's like the number one reason why they stop showing up to get vaccinated. So those, I think, were a couple of things I took out of the last flu season. I mean, there are others, but those were big things that kind of shifted the season around a little bit. Um, How did we end up doing in terms of um, immunization rates in the United States? And I'm especially interested in pediatric immunization rates, but both adults and kids. How, how did that turn out? Yeah, so the final numbers were just released about a couple of months ago. Um, and, you know, we had drops in, bo in both pediatric as well as adult immunization coverage rates. So um, the drops in the pediatric rates weren't significant. So uh, last year, uh, we had about 70% of our kids between the ages of six to four years vaccinated. And this, this, this season that we just came out of, we were at 67.8%. So we had about a 2.2% drop. Um, for children that were five to 12 years of age, uh, we had about 60% vaccinated the previous season. And then in this season that we just came out of, we were like about 59, 5.5%. So we dropped just a little bit. And then for children 13 to 17 years of age, um, the season before we were at 48.8%. And then this season that we just came out of, we were at 47%. So one percentage drops not statistically significant, but still not what we want to see, especially when we think about pediatrics being a group that we want to continually keep increasing the coverage rates because they are children are vulnerable to disease. And pediatrics is something that we kind of need to pay attention to because mortality for as a result of uh, pediatric influenza, so in other words, pediatric deaths uh, in, for influenza is the one thing we actually do report on in the United States for flu. Unfortunately, influenza is not a reportable disease otherwise, except for the pediatric mortality. So we actually do have numbers for that. And, That's what and I was because, about to ask you about. So great. Yeah. So we had about 185 children pass last year. Um, yeah. uh, it's a, it was a it was a nasty season. The other thing that was you know it was an H3N2 season, which tends to be nasty, uh, compared to let's say an influenza H1 season, which tends to be a little bit milder. Um, again, those are just general generalizations. Every season can be different, but um, 
but 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 with 185 deaths last year, if you look at the number of kids that weren't vaccinated, that was 80 percent. So I think that's on us. Yeah. I think that's our failure, right? So we let, you know, 185. So you do your math of those kids pass away because we didn't vaccinate them. And I, I just think that's unacceptable. And I think that's on all of us, all of us as public health folks, as, 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 as providers, be you physician, nurse practitioners, be you that receptionist that greets a parent and their children at the office. You know, all of, the, all of us have, have responsibility in, in those deaths. And I think that's not just not acceptable as far as I'm concerned. That leads into one of the things I wanted to ask you about, which is what can pediatricians and other um, <clears throat> practitioners that take care of children what can we do to improve our immunization rates and particularly you know we talk a lot on this podcast about how to talk with hesitant families but i feel like there are a lot of other strategies that don't just come down to convincing a parent but how can we reach out to communities and areas and populations that don't have great immunization rates that might respond to certain kinds of outreach what kind of ideas do you have and what kind of projects have Mm -hmm. you worked on or known about so, so that's a great question, and I, I have to say, it, it, it has to actually start with the pediatrician and, and the family doc or the or the immunizing provider, right? In this case, one of the things that that I worry about with with influenza is that I think the pediatrician who's who's wholesale committed to providing DTaP, or wholesale committed to providing polio vaccine, unfortunately, I don't get that same commitment sense when you talk to them about influenza. Mm-hmm. And I, I can think of several reasons why. I think, I think unfortunately, if we look within, you know, I think some docs will say, hey, actually, um, you know, I, I have some skepticism about the effectiveness of the vaccine. And again, as I said earlier, that 10% that came out of Australia probably had something to do with that, right? Um, and, and they'll say that. And they'll say, you know, I, I just, you know, it's not as effective. Therefore, I don't work as hard as recommending it, right? I've got these other vaccines that I, I know I believe in. I'm going to give that a little more effort. So that's so. I think we need to we need to say to our pediatricians and our family docs that that actually influenza is extremely serious. Look at all these pediatric mortalities, um, and then I think we then also need to shift the conversation a little bit to help these providers understand the value of the vaccination goes beyond just preventing incidents of disease, right? There's data out there that at least three publications that I can think of that show that for children, if you get vaccinated. Um, it it not only prevents incidence of disease, it also reduces hospitalization rates, it reduces medically attended visits, and reduces the severity of the incidence of, 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 the, of the influenza that you do catch if you catch it, so that the child, you know, won't die, right, or won't come out with some nasty consequence because of influenza. And I think sometimes that gets lost with the pediatric provider. That it's it's not just about preventing disease because you know when you think when you talk to them about MMR they're used to that ninety five percent effectiveness rates right and they're going yeah ninety five percent effectiveness at preventing disease so I vaccinate my kids with MMR and I know ninety five percent of them are not going to get sick you can't say that about flu and I think as a result I think there's that hesitancy there's not that complete buy in so I think we need to tell them it's not just about preventing incidence of disease. It's also preventing hospitalizations, severe disease that can lead to consequences to the child that we don't want. And and if you take a look at our rates in 185 deaths, a couple of really interesting things will pop out to you if you look at those numbers. Firstly, some pediatricians have t- said to me, you know, I worry about that zero to four-year-old age group because they're the quote-unquote vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the 185 deaths we had last year, I can tell you that 59% of those deaths were in children five years of age and older. Oh, wow. Mm. Right? So, so uh-uh, not true. You can't use age to decide who you want to prioritize to vaccinate. Sure. Then I, I'll have some pediatricians also tell me, hey, I look at risk. You know, if, this, if the child is clearly not at high risk, I'm not as worried about that kid because we know that influenza, no quote unquote, right? That influenza, you know, really severely impacts those at high risk with with, with high risk condition. So if you look at the 185 deaths last year, all right, 50% had no high risk condition, nothing that you could see. So what I'm trying to say also here is you can't pick and choose who you're going to prioritize. We need to vaccinate all our kids. You know, we do, I do some talking about, when I talk with families about this too, 
um, I talk about those factors that you talked about. And the other thing that I talk about is preventing the spread, uh, Craig, because there's some studies, if I recall, that indicate that um, immunizing children reduces the spread to other vulnerable populations like the elderly. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Can I just add to Yes. Because I I was thinking about this. Um, Can you talk a little bit, as long as you're talking about spread, about parents getting immunized, whether or not that's important as far as protecting their kiddos too? Oh, absolutely. So let's talk first to the, the, the first one direction, the first direction, right, which is, uh, you know, um, what, what do we, you know, which is Nathan's point. Um, so I think it's interesting because, you know, this all started with Japanese. The Japanese for a long time were very, very conscientious with vaccinating their children uh, against influenza. And, um, and, as, and what happened was as resources changed and the, and the priorities of the public public health changed in Japan, they stopped uh, the universal vaccination program of children in Japan. Uh, but, and remember, because of the socialized medicine system, when they say vaccinate, everyone gets vaccinated, and when they stop, everything kind of stops, right? So it's not like us. Um, and what they saw, and this is published in the New England Journal of Medicine, is that when the program ceased in children, they saw a significant increase of influenza in their grandparents, in the elderly, over 65. <laughs> so that goes exactly with what you're talking about, Nathan, about the, the impact of, um, mm-hmm. of of obviously vaccinating the what they call the transmitters. It's kind of hard to call our kids that, but that's what that's what they are right they go to school they pick up the jugs the bugs they pick up flu they bring it home and they give it to folks that are vulnerable you know folks with immunocompromised folks who are older so absolutely i think um so so you're absolutely right so beyond the benefit directly to the child to vaccinate them there's this indirect uh community benefit that you can you do when you vaccinate the children as well um and then the other way around i absolutely believe in this one because i think if you've got a healthy adult we know we have a good flu vaccine. We also know it's not a great flu vaccine. It's not a perfect flu vaccine. So that's why our effectiveness rates ranges every season from anywhere from 20 to 60, 70, 80%, depending on the season and depending on the the, the, the strain of influenza virus you're looking at, right? We tend to do, the vaccine tends to work a little bit better against H1 than it did with H3. And we have the data from last season to support that. Against H1, the vaccine was almost 80% effective. And against H3, it was about 30% effective. So, so we do have that information. We do know that. But in the healthy adults, they will respond, they tend to respond the best. So yeah, if I'm a healthy 35-year-old parent with a four-year-old child or a one-year-old infant, I will be the first to go and get out and get vaccinated because I don't want to be transmitting influenza that I pick up from work, from outside to, to my vulnerable children or to my vulnerable parents, as the case may be. So so absolutely, Karen, I think your point is also valid that it goes both ways. We, we transmit to the kids, kids transmit to us. Best way is to vaccinate everybody which is why the recommendation is what it is right six months of age and older get a flu shot and i really believe in that i'll i just want to share with you because mostly because i want accolades that um, (laughs) i've been getting flu shots for over 20 years the first flu shot i ever got my roommate in college took me to get it she said you should get a flu shot and she just took me along with it and i paid out of pocket for it as a college student because she said you're gonna you're going to go student teach next semester so you should really get a flu shot and then when I when I was teaching, they always had flu shot clinics. So they would just line the teachers up and you know give us our our jabs, and we'd be, we'd be protected. So I really was felt conscientious about protecting the children who were under my care, even if they weren't mine. And then when you become a, a mom, of course, you you don't want to get sick yourself because moms and dads aren't allowed to get sick, right? Um, <laughs> no kidding. So, but um, one of the things that coming from that sort of ethos, that feeling like I had to participate in a social contract about getting my flu shot, that disturbs me as I see it is how public, um, how public some doctors and nurses are about refusing the flu vaccine. And I'm wondering if there's something we can do about that. I mean, I really don't want people to lose their livelihoods and their jobs. Uh, I'd I'd rather they just got the flu vaccine. But what can we do to sort of stem that tide among professionals who are in a caretaking role to encourage them to go ahead and get their flu vaccines? What's and, and also what's that all about? Why are they refusing them? Yeah, so that's a great question. And generally, if you take a look at the surveys that are out there, you'll find that the reason why healthcare professionals refuse the flu vaccines tend to be the same reasons why the public refuses their flu vaccines, right? And, and I can't agree with you enough 
of the importance of a healthcare professional getting vaccinated. And that's because, you know, I, I, I've always said that if you are a provider who is obese, you're, you're unlikely to counsel about obesity. <laughs> and if you're a provider who smokes, it's, you're very unlikely to counsel about smoking cessation because it, it, you just, it's just inconsistent, right? So same thing with flu vaccination. You're, you're less likely to offer influenza vaccination if, if you're not vaccinated yourself. And I think the reasons out there are similar to what we see in the public. And I think one of them is a lot of them believe the vaccine doesn't work. Now, now that being said, you know, as we talk about this, I, I want to point out that the one place where our coverage rates continue to get better and better and better and continue to be our little shining star for all the data we have on influenza vaccination coverage, it's actually healthcare professionals. So healthcare professionals actually are vaccinated at a very substantial rate. Um, you know, so the, the numbers from last year are, are really nice. So if you take a look at uh, physicians last year, they were vaccinated at 96%. Nurses were vaccinated at 88%, um, sorry, 90%. Uh, pharmacists were vaccinated at about 92%. So I, I think our a lot of our direct care healthcare providers are actually getting vaccinated. Now, that being said, there is one area that we continue to struggle, and that's responsible for where the overall rates drop, right? And and that's in our nursing aides, our, our mm. employees in the long-term care assisted living settings. Oh, that's not good. That's not good. So, and they're the ones that are taking care of some of the most vulnerable populations, right? You know, these are folks who are elderly, who are, who are dependent on close contact, direct physical contact care. And if these aides and these, these, these caregivers are not vaccinated, that's not a good thing. And, and you can say, well, the population's vaccinated, right? Because they're in nursing care, CMS, you know, you've got all these uh, quality requirements. Well, absolutely. But we also know that if you're 85 and have three comorbid conditions and in a nursing home, you are less likely to respond to the vaccine as if you were 40 years old or 45 years old and healthy. So in other words, while we want to vaccinate them, absolutely, because vaccine in the arm is better than the 0% of vaccine left on the shelf in terms of effectiveness. You know, we know that these elderly folks are not going to respond at 50% effectiveness. They're going to be far less. Now, the, and the vaccine will prevent serious illness if they, in, they do get sick. But we know that they're more vulnerable, the vaccine's less effective. So all the more reason that these direct caregivers, these caregivers in general, are, are vaccinated so that they don't transmit. So, so absolutely, I think. But, but, but the, but the nice thing, Karen, is that you know the, the physicians, the nurses, the nurse practitioners, the pharmacists are are, are up there in the ninety percent, and that's exactly where we want them to be. Do you think that that improvement is because of better understanding and better, uh, more uptake because healthcare workers are choosing to, or do you think it's because of? policies that are being implemented in more hospitals and clinics and whatnot that require them or some of both? Yeah, I, I, I wish I could say some of both. I wish I could say it's because of education, but the hard facts is that, um, for example, if you look at the most recent data from this fast food season, if you look at hospitals that had no uh, requirement in terms of employer policy for vaccination, they were vaccinated, their personnel were vaccinated about 40%. A hospital that had a requirement uh, for vaccination was vaccinated at 97 percent, all their personnel. So I wish I could say I wish I could say was it was education. I wish it could. I wish I could say it was this this ethos to ethos to do good. But unfortunately, as we all know, sometimes it takes a little bit of that stick behind it to move it forward. One. Um exception to that rule is Children's Hospital in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and that's because of Patsy Stinchfield. So they don't have a requirement, but they have, I mean, I think pretty, I think 100% of their doctors. And, they have Patsy uh, all over there. <laughs> yeah, Patsy. All you need to do is clone Patsy Stinchfield yeah. and put her in every hospital and everyone will be vaccinated. You know, and I, I, I so absolutely agree with you about Patsy. And I think, I think there's also a, um, a commitment that 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 when you have a champion like that that brings to the whole floor um there's a there's a there's a little bit of a shaming too right i mean mm -hmm. if you're in a hospital or a children's hospital that has a patsy and everyone's kind of on board and you're the one that's resistant it, it it's not it's not cool not hip right okay. so but but that being said i want to also point out that you know you know children's hospital of philadelphia has paul off it mm -hmm. right but but they went to a mandatory uh policy because they couldn't get over 90 percent Right. Well, I think they're a larger hospital too. So. And they're larger as well. So, so I think, you know, 
I think you got to do what you got to do. And and I and 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 the the data is clear that if you want to get over ninety percent, you got to really consider that that condition of employment. I'm going to stop because I think Nathan's going to ask a question, but I'm going to ask before him because this is important. Sure. Um, <laughs> how about the idea, if you don't have a Patsy or a Paul Offit, having somebody write Hamilton parodies about the flu shot? Does that increase <laughs> uptake among uh, doctors and nurses? So we, we won't know because my hospital requires the flu vaccine. <laughs> oh, so I don't have data to show either way it's a confounder <laughs> I, I i certainly according to some of the more color you know the more um interesting people that uh commented on my post uh the what i did would lower immunization rates and get people <laughs> to not get the flu vaccine so hopefully not but i guess every you know uh, i mean i'm not as, a critic uh, i can't really speak to that. as a huge hamilton fan and totally <laughs> in support of not throwing away our shots um, i have to say that um I, I actually think anything that draws attention favorable or otherwise to the fact that we have a very serious disease and we have a vaccine that can prevent it as well as importantly prevent its negative impacts uh even if you do get sick with flu uh is is, is great so i i you know i've been i've been sending out on our summit list all those videos that are being created mm -hmm. in hospitals that are parodies of not just hamilton but everything else uh, and some of them are are, are, are really bad <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but again, you know, I, I like the fact that we can laugh at ourselves, but at the same time, sure. remind people that we have an important situation here. Right. You know, there are a lot out there that are really good, and I don't have them at my fingertips right now, but there have been some other parodies specifically of that Hamilton song, too, that have been done far better than mine. And so if you just kind of go out and Google vaccines, Hamilton, my shot, then that's worth uh, doing because there's some good stuff that some people have made at upstate medical that um did a parody of imagine dragons oh um oh, and i'll awesome. put it on my facebook so which imagine just, dragon song uh it's the i think it's called believe oh, believer yeah believer believer shoot yeah hold on let me i can you can i, I have i have teenage kids so i yeah, yeah i, I think it's i do too i just want to make sure i have the right song <laughs> and say we all have boys about the same age so of course yeah. we know imagine dragons. What, was it the song that they use at the season one finale for riverdale <laughs> <laughs> we don't watch riverdale i never knew until a couple months ago that that was a remake of the archie comics I had no idea. You know what? If you're an Archie comic fan, it's not. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's it's dark. It's funny. It's satirical. It's um, it's edgy. <laughs> it's everything Archie never was. So right. <laughs> but um, but it's funny. I was giving a talk on adolescent immunizations yesterday at the Shots for Tots conference in Louisiana, and, and when mm -hmm. I talk about adolescence, one of the things I do is actually I show a picture of my my adolescent kids. who are not actually some of them aren't adolescent anymore. Once a no. teenager. Beyond you know that. what the song? Sorry, the the song is actually um. Dang it! I'm looking at the parody now. I can't think of the real song in my head. It's um, whatever it takes. That's what. Oh, it whatever is. it takes. Do whatever yeah. it takes, except it's I vac I'll vaccinate because I want to keep that virus in its place. Oh, if you could such. send me that so, link, I I yeah, love it. I'll, I'd get it out well, there. Well, I'm gonna put it on my Facebook page, so you're gonna find my name, and then you can find it there. It is from Upstate Medical University, uh, in I believe Upstate New York. So <clears throat> check that out on my Facebook page. I will do that, Nathan. I want to go time traveling again, if you guys would indulge me. This time I want to travel into the future, but only a few months. <laughs> and I'm wondering, because I know that you are a great prognosticator and that you like telling the future, that you'll be able to tell us what is the flu season ahead of us going to be like? Oh, you know, yeah, I can't do that, Karen. <laughs> okay, that's true. But what do we know so far about the flu season? All right, so so, so a couple of things, right? I, and I started this conversation saying the only thing certain about flu is its uncertainty. You can't base one season and, you, and predict the next season. So now I'm going to break all of that and just because you asked me to, Karen. Thank you. <laughs> um, and say that so, so the good news right now is that um, we have flu at low levels, but it's not, it's not peaking yet. Uh, right now, it's looking like H1 is coming up stronger. And as we know, H1 tends to be, and again, one season is one season. But in general, if you look at the preponderance of the seasons, H1 seasons tend to be less severe 
than an H3's dominant season. So right now it looks like H1 is, is, the, is the strain that's popping up. We know our vaccine matches at H1 really, really well. And if you believe the data from last year, well, the data is real. So if, if you can if you can do what I say you shouldn't do and extrapolate from last year to this year, where we had a effectiveness of almost 80% against H1, I have to believe if you're vaccinated this year and if the H1 season tends to be really does predominate, um, I think we're going to have a good year. Now, that's that's what I'm looking at, looking at tea leaves that I really don't want to look at. Now, if the if the if the epidemiology switches and H3 begins to come up, H3 begins to come up, then everything goes out the window, right? But um, knock on wood. Uh well, thank you for prognosticating for us, LJ. And thank you so much for joining us. It's just really great to hear from you. And I'm so glad that everybody got to join us too and listen in. Um, before we go, we have a little call to action of sorts. Nathan, you had something you want everyone to do. Yeah, if you would head on over to my blog, which is pedsgeekmd.com. I have a new blog post up there that is about the influenza vaccine in pregnancy. And not being an expert in pregnancy myself, I interviewed a certified nurse midwife here uh, at Unity Point in Des Moines, and we talked about the importance of influenza vaccine during pregnancy. I also am working on kind of curating all the research that's out there that shows that the influenza vaccine is safe and effective in pregnancy, and also that it leads to better outcomes for mothers and for babies and so I'm going to be working on that over the next few weeks I've got a number of studies on there now but that's going to kind of be an ongoing project for me so check out the top of the blog at pedsgeekmd.com for that and also if you'd look on my Facebook uh, page we mentioned the uh, Upstate Medical University parody of the Imagine Dragons um, song whatever it takes I'm going to put that right on my Facebook page so you can check that out. I don't know if our discussion on that is going to get cut out of the audio that we nope, did with, with LJR. Oh, we're keeping it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So either way, go check that out as well. What do you have? Oh, I didn't know I was supposed to have a call to action. I guess here's my call to action, folks. If you haven't gotten your flu shot yet, go get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is a really important thing. It's not too late to get your flu shot. I know in my local area, it's still sporadic, the flu is. And yeah, I'm not seeing much yet. So, I mean, mm -hmm. it does take a week or two for your immunity to fully kick in. But if you get it right away, you should be, you know, good to go for most of the flu season, if not all of it here. So, or at least all of the, all of the heavy flu season. So, get to it. Especially if you're pregnant. Yes. Alrighty, well, thank you so much for joining us. It's so great to have you here and have you join our conversation, our vaccine conversation, as it were. Uh, my name is Karen Ernst. I'm the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. Y you can find us at voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, General Pediatrician here in Des Moines. You can find my aforementioned blog, pedsgeekmd.com, or find me on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, and thank you very much for joining us. Yep. Be well, everybody, and enjoy this outro song. <laughs> so you just have to imagine this with, I'm not going to do any backup music, but you have to imagine it as kind of a, a parody of the music that goes along with our jingle, and it goes like this. Oh, it's time to listen to the vaccine conversation. We're spreading our thoughts and measles all around the nation. We've got a longer name and a doctor on probation because we're not Vax Talk. We're the vaccine conversation. <laughs> there you go. That's it. <laughs>